One of the things I've tried to accomplish in the early parts of this sermon series through Exodus is to convince you that this book is not merely a historical account of Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. If we read this book carefully, and especially if if we read it in light of the rest of Scripture, Genesis before it and everything else after it, we see that the book of Exodus is much more than a bare and factual history of, of the Israelite nation. We have observed that the deliverance that God worked for the Hebrews to rescue them from Pharaoh and and from his oppressive kingdom was an earthly picture of the spiritual and eternal deliverance that the Messiah would accomplish. Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And today I wish to emphasize another purpose of the Exodus event Not only was the exodus meant to typify the redemption that Christ would accomplish, the exodus was also meant to reveal God to us. When God delivered the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage, He revealed Himself to them more fully and more clearly clearly than He had revealed Himself to those who lived before. And this idea is not new to you. I emphasized it as we considered that episode of the burning bush where God revealed uh, the significance of his name Yahweh to Moses. In that, mo- in that moment, Moses received something greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as it pertains to the knowledge of God. God's proper name, Yahweh, means that he is the I Am. He is the self-existent, eternal, and unchanging God who stands in need of no one and nothing. He gives, but never does he receive. He is the one and only. He is the Almighty. Moses received that revelation And this was the revelation that he was to share with the Hebrews. Moses was to explain the name of God to them. And I've said that redemptive act and revelation go together. And I don't want you to forget that fact. Redemptive act and revelation go together. They fit together hand in glove. When God reveals himself, he acts. And when God acts, he reveals himself. Never was this more true than at the time of the Exodus and in the days of Christ. God revealed Himself to man profoundly in those days. And this revelation came in both word and in deed. God spoke and He saved. In the days of Moses, God spoke and He saved. In the days of Christ, God spoke and He saved. And so then, as we consider what God did for the Hebrews in the days of Moses, we must also consider what He revealed concerning Himself. For this was one of the primary objectives in acting as he did, to show who he is, to disclose himself, to put his glory on display. That is a major theme in the book of Exodus. Why did God do what he did in those days? Why did he do it the way that he did it? He was putting his glory on display for the Hebrews to see, for the Egyptians to see, for the whole world to see onto this present day. God's glory was manifest as he rescued Israel from Egyptian bondage. We are to pay very careful attention to this. At the Exodus, God not only displayed His glory to Moses, nor to the Hebrews only, but to the Egyptians also. Indeed, God's glory would be manifest to the whole world as word spread concerning what He did for the Hebrews and against the Pharaoh and the Egyptians in those days. In fact, that's emphasized in later narratives that the nations trembled before Israel and Israel's God as, as word spread concerning this great act of deliverance that was accomplished. 
But to say it in a different way, the Exodus story is not merely a history of the deliverance of the Hebrews, nor is it a picture of the redemption that the Messiah would accomplish only. It is a marvelous display of the glory of God Almighty. Here in Exodus, the glory of God is put on display for all to see. And in particular, we clearly observe that God is God Most High. He is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is 1 Timothy 6.15. He is awesome in power and in His judgments. And He is merciful, gracious, and kind. The Exodus event made all of this apparent. Now the passage we are considering today, Exodus 4.18-31, it almost seems insignificant upon first read. It feels um, like a transitional passage, and, and that's because it is. Uh, This passage gets Moses from Midian back to Egypt. But the passage is not insignificant. In fact, it anticipates major themes that will develop later in the book. You've probably encountered something like this while watching a movie. And and I did try to think of an example, but I couldn't because I don't watch movies very often. But I do know that it happens Early in a movie, something rather small or insignificant will happen, something will be said, and then then that thing, that little insignificant event, will grow into the major theme of the film. Maybe you can think of an example of this. Don't think about it too much, because then you'll miss out on the rest of the sermon, I guess. But I think you know how this works, and I think this is what's happening here in the Exodus narrative. Um, These stories that are told here, little things that are said, little events that happen grow into big and major themes as the story of the Exodus moves on. This morning I wish to identify these themes and to trace them out a little to show their development. I think it's a helpful approach. If we were reading the book of Exodus all at once in one sitting, we'd probably recognize this, but because we're moving so slowly through this book, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, this gets lost sometimes. And so uh, we're going to trace out some themes as we consider uh, this passage uh, today. So what themes does this little passage, passage anticipate? There are two that I wish to emphasize this morning. One, God's sovereignty over all things. And two, the display of God's glory, both in judgment and in mercy. God's sovereignty over all things, and then the display of His glory, both in judgment and in in mercy. The theme of God's sovereignty permeates this passage. In fact, this is a very natural outgrowth of the passage we considered not long ago wherein God revealed His name to Moses. God revealed Himself as Yahweh, the I Am. God is. No one made God, for He has always existed. No one gives life to God, for He is life. He is the giver of all life. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is God Almighty. Again, He is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, That that divine name, Yahweh, which signifies that He is I Am, teaches us all of this, which I have just stated. He is Sovereign. When When we say that God is Sovereign over all things, we mean that He is in control of all things. He is the supreme ruler. He possesses supreme and ultimate power. 
In fact, when we say that God is sovereign, we do not only mean that He is the most powerful of all powers, but that He is all-powerful. His power is without boundaries or limitations. And we must also consider this, all other powers, whether angels or men, have their power only because God has given it to them. Have you ever thought about that? As you consider the great and powerful figures that exist in the world today, or the great and powerful figures that have existed throughout human history, we, we tend to look at them and, and to think of them as, as possessing their power within themselves, but they do not. Every breath they take is from God. They have their power because God has granted it to them. He is their creator. He is their sustainer, just like He is our creator and sustainer too. So, so God is not just a little bit more powerful than the most powerful man. He is all-powerful, and in fact, all powers derive their power from God Himself. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. In Him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17.28. In His hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind, Job 12.10. So when we say that God is sovereign, we do not only mean that He is more powerful than the greatest of angels and men, but that His power is without limitations and all other powers derive their power from Him. Yahweh is I Am. He is the fire that needs no fuel to burn. I hope you can see why this is a very important thing for us to grasp and to remember as we sojourn in this world. This is our God. He is, he is the sovereign one. And when we say that God is sovereign over all things, we do not merely mean that He is managing all things. I wonder if you, you could visualize what I mean by this. God is not up in heaven uh, juggling it all and barely holding it together. You and I do that. Uh, kings, even great kings, do that. Uh, kings manage their domains. We manage our domains. And if we are doing well, things are kept orderly. Um, they're kept from falling apart. But even then, there is so much that is outside of our control. When we think of the sovereignty of God we are to remember that He does not merely manage things to keep them from degenerating into utter chaos. No, He is really and truly in control of all things, for not only does He know the beginning from the end, He has declared it. This is what we hear God saying in Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like Me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all My purpose. Indeed, our God works all things according to the counsel of His will. So when we speak of God as being sovereign, we are not to think of Him being sovereign in the same way that a king is sovereign over His realm. There's a correspondence there, of course. But God is sovereign in a completely different way. He is not in heaven merely managing things, keeping them from falling apart. No, He is in heaven and He is truly in control of all things. He is accomplishing all of His purposes. He not only knows the beginning from the end, but He has declared the beginning from the end. Really, this stuff that I'm rattling off to you this morning is doctrine of God 101. It is. God is really God, is what I'm saying to you. He's really God. He's sovereign. He's completely in control. He is all-powerful. Nothing is outside of His control at all, to put it 
in maybe a shocking way, not a molecule in the universe moves apart from His sovereign will. Did you realize that? And yet so few Christians know and believe this. I'm saying that the Exodus event, it's not just a, a bare history of Israel and their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. It is also to be considered a demonstration of God's sovereignty over all things. Uh, that He is sovereign, we know. And He could tell us that He's sovereign. In fact, His Word does tell us that. But in the Exodus event, we see a demonstration of this fact. He, he proves it by action. He demonstrates that He's sovereign over all things. He's in control. In Genesis, we learn that God is the Creator of all things. In Exodus, we are reassured that He is sovereign over all things. He is Lord Most High. He's the Almighty in the Exodus event, God's supreme and unbounded power is put on display. We will see that He has power over nature. He has power over the so-called gods of Egypt. He puts them to shame. And He has power over Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth at the time. He has power over him. He, even, even Pharaoh's heart falls under the sovereignty of God. The theme of the sovereignty of God over all things will grow large in the book of Exodus in fact, attention is repeatedly drawn to this theme through the use of the word power. Why the exodus? Why the stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart, which we will soon encounter? Why the ten plagues and the parting of the sea? Why that whole process? That, that's been the question on my mind as I've been studying the book of Exodus and writing these sermons. Why this whole process? I mean, couldn't God have just delivered Israel with the snap of His fingers, you know? Uh, couldn't He have accomplished His purposes in another way? Uh, in a way that wouldn't have involved so much suffering, you know? Why this whole process? Uh, well, we will come to learn that the process was a demonstration of God's power. The process was a demonstration of God's sovereign power. In Exodus 9.16, the Lord speaks through Moses to Pharaoh, saying, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And God spoke these words, Exodus 9.16, to Pharaoh before the outpouring of the seventh plague. So right in the middle of the plague narrative, Pharaoh was among the most powerful rulers on earth. He was considered by the Egyptians to be divine. And yet God says, I'm the one who raised you up. And I've raised you up for this purpose. This is why I've done it. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. To demonstrate my power to you and to the world through these plagues, through the deliverance of Israel, through the parting of the Red Sea, which would come later. After the account of Israel crossing the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh being swallowed up by the water, we read these words. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That is Exodus 14.31. What did the people of Israel see? What did they observe? God's great power. It was put on display. The ten plagues, the parting of the sea, the deliverance from Pharaoh and his army were a demonstration of God's power. And after crossing the sea safely, and after witnessing the defeat of the Egyptians, Moses and all of Israel sang a song. Exodus 15 records this song for us. And when we come to it, we will see that it is all about God's power. It gives praise to God for His glorious power. For example, verse 6 says, 
Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. So this song that Moses and Israel sang, what was it doing except giving glory to God for His, for his power? He is the sovereign one. He demonstrated His power over all things through this deliverance that He accomplished. My point is this. The book of Exodus is about a lot of things. But one of the main things it is about is God's power. The Exodus event clearly revealed that Yahweh is God Most High. He is God Almighty. He is, again, the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I've said that the passage before us today anticipates the development of this major theme, and it does. God's sovereignty over salvation is displayed in the call of Moses and Aaron. Notice here that Aaron traveled from Egypt and Moses from Midian, and they met at the mountain of the Lord. So evidently, Aaron was called too. We aren't told the details of Aaron's calling in the way that we were told the details of Moses' calling, but it is clear that God was orchestrating this whole thing. He was, he was doing a work in those days to bring about salvation for, for the Hebrews. So here, uh, Moses begins his journey, and Aaron, his brother, begins his from Egypt, and they travel through this vast wilderness, and they come to meet at the mountain of the Lord. You know, God is orchestrating all of this. He is calling these men so as to accomplish His work through them. He is sovereign over salvation. And also we see that God is sovereign over judgment. And this is anticipated in the words of verse 21, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. God calls Moses to go and to to deliver the Hebrews. He's to perform these signs before Pharaoh. He's to say to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. But God says here before Moses even comes before Pharaoh, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Think about those words for a moment. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God hardened Pharaoh's heart before, during, and after the outpouring of the ten plagues. The heart, according to the scriptures, is the inner man. It is the combination of the mind, will, and emotions. It is the spiritual aspect of the person. It is the true self. The Egyptians actually had the same perspective as the Hebrews. But they would go even further to say that the heart was a divine instrument through which a God directed a man. Both the Hebrews and the Egyptians saw the heart as very significant. It is the place from which the life of a person flows. Their heart determines their way. So then, it was no small thing for Yahweh to claim to have this power over Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the planet. The Egyptians thought of him as divine. His heart was in tune with the gods, they thought. But here Yahweh claims to be sovereign even over the heart of Pharaoh. He will harden it, he says, so that he will not let the people go. 
And no, this idea that God would harden Pharaoh's heart is not a passing theme, but a pervasive one in the Exodus narrative. And I want for you to see this this morning. I want to quickly survey the passages that mention the hardening or hardness of Pharaoh's heart. You might be surprised at how often it is mentioned in this story. Really, the first hint of this is found back in 319-20, where God said to Moses, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So the word hardness is not used here, but God does indicate that this will be the case. There's going to be a stubbornness found within Pharaoh. God again says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart in, in 7.3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. 7.13. Here we find Moses' commentary on Pharaoh's refusal, refusal to let the people go. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not let, listen to them as the Lord had said. The words, as the Lord had said, hearken back to 421, to our passage for today, where the Lord said, I will harden his heart. 722, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. They mimicked one of the plagues that Moses had worked, one of the, one of the wonders, rather, that Moses had worked. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said, again, hearkening back to 421, just as the Lord has said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Here's the fulfillment of it. 815, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Notice here, it is not the Lord who hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh is said to have hardened his own heart. I think this is significant. In fact, we should take note of this. That is Exodus 815. 819, then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, even they are acknowledging, uh, you know, this is not trickery. God is clearly doing these works. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. 9.12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. 9.34, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So here again, we have another instance of the Scripture saying that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and it is also said that he sinned in so doing. 9.35, So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. 10.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. 10.20, 10.27, 11.10, 14.4, Fourteen eight, I meant to read them, but I'm realizing now that this is really belaboring the point. I kind of wanted to belabor the point to show you that this is not a passing little theme in the Exodus narrative, but it is pervasive. It is brought to the front and to the center. God wants us to know that He hardened Pharaoh's heart in judgment so as to display His glory through Him. That's why I've taken the time to read all of these texts this morning. I want you to see that this is a major theme. 421 anticipates it, but it is brought front and center throughout the Exodus narrative. 
Why? Because the Exodus event was, among other things, a revelation of the power of God. It was a demonstration that God is sovereign over all things, yes, even over Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart. This idea that God hardened Pharaoh's heart has troubled many modern evangelicals. And why is that? Why is this such a troubling concept for some? You know, it's not a, a tangent. It's, it's front and center throughout the Scriptures. But why, why are many Christians so, so bothered by this idea that God actively hardened Pharaoh's heart? It is because many evangelicals have been taught the lie that God is sovereign over everything except what? The heart of man. God is sovereign, they say, over everything except there's one thing that God must never touch. One thing that must be left totally free and, and independent. This one thing is off limits to God. Man's heart, they say, must be left alone. God cannot touch it at all. Think of that for a moment. And if that's what you've been indoctrinated with, this idea that that God is sovereign over everything except man and the life of man, then when you read this emphasis in the narrative, it's going to trouble you. God hardened Pharaoh's heart? It's not unclear. He was the active agent. He brought this hardness upon him. You know. But my question to many Christians today who, who have believed this lie this lie that God is not allowed to intervene in, in, in man's life in this way. My question would simply be this. Says who? Says who? That's my question. Who, who told you this? Where, where do you come to this conclusion? Clearly this is not what the scriptures teach. Exodus plainly says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But that was Pharaoh, the evangelical will say, or many evangelicals will say. That was Pharaoh. He, he was unique, you know. So this was kind of a a one-off, you know? God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he's never done that before or after. Well, yes, Exodus says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but notice it also said that he hardened his servants' hearts too. And I would ask you this, if it is wrong for God to harden a man's heart, then didn't God do wrong when he hardened Pharaoh's and the servants of Pharaoh? For these were, these were men. And more than this, the Scriptures do not only teach that God was sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. No, the Scriptures clearly teach that God is sovereign over the heart of every man. This is Paul's entire argument in that Romans 9 passage that I read to you. Esau and Pharaoh are set forth as examples of reprobates. But Paul's point is to teach the doctrine of election unto salvation for all who are in Christ. And this theme begins in chapter 8 and runs through chapter 11 of the book of Romans. In 9.18 he says, So then God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. He is not speaking of what God did with Esau and Pharaoh only. No, He's actually putting them forth as examples of, of, of God's right to, to harden some and, and to draw others. In 11.7-10, of the book of Romans. He says, The elect obtained what Israel was seeking, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, yes, that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. 
as David says, let their table become a snare and trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. If you pay careful attention to what Paul's teaching in Romans 9 and in the surrounding passages, you see that he's applying this not to a couple of unique individuals in the history of mankind, but, but to all. And John says the same thing in his gospel. In John 12, 36 and following, we hear the words of Jesus saying, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. So he, he preaches the gospel and calls men to belief and, and to repentance. And then we have John's words. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, John says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, John is looking and, and he's observing what happened in those days. What did Jesus do? He worked signs in front of the multitudes and so many persisted in their unbelief. And John considers all of that. He says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is a fulfillment to the prophet Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. He's saying the same thing happened in the days of Jesus as happened in the days of Moses. You know, Moses would work signs in front of Pharaoh and the Egyptians they persisted in their unbelief, and yet the whole narrative is telling us that God hardened their hearts so that they would not believe. And John is saying the same thing happened in the days of Jesus as he performed these miracles before so many, and yet they persisted in their unbelief. God blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, he says. And so you can clearly see the scriptures teach that God is sovereign over everything, and yes, even the heart of every man. Over Pharaoh, yes. And over every king, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, says Proverbs 21.1. Indeed, God is sovereign over the common man, too. He does sovereignly draw men to himself by his mercy and grace, and he does sovereignly pass over and even harden others. And this is his just judgment. This is his just judgment. To the evangelical who says that God is sovereign over all things except the heart of man, I ask, do you really believe this? Your prayers will reveal that you do not, for even you will pray that God would change the hearts of those you love to bring them to salvation. Deep down you know that this is our only hope. If men and women are to be saved, their hearts must be touched by God. They must hear the gospel and be drawn by the Spirit. God must take the heart of stone that is in them naturally, and He must make it soft if they are to repent and believe upon Christ. Their spiritual eyes must be opened, their ears unstopped. You know this almost intuitively as a Christian. You know this because you've read enough Scripture. God must be sovereign over the heart of man. He must touch the heart of man if men and women are to come to faith in Christ. He must do that work within them by the power of His Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Scriptures teach this so very clearly. Yahweh is sovereign over all things, and this includes the hearts of men. By His mercy, He draws some to Himself through Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and to the praise of of His glorious grace. And according to His justice, 
He does leave others in their sin and even hardens their hearts so that they remain unbelieving to the praise of His glorious judgments. If you don't believe me, then you need to read again the Exodus narrative. Read again Romans 9, which comments on this. A few questions do arise, of course. Isn't this unjust for God to choose some and to pass over others? You will remember that Paul anticipates that objection in Romans 9. He anticipates this objection because it's the very thing that he's teaching. And he answers it by simply saying, by no means. And then he proceeds to speak of God's right to show mercy to whomever he wills and to harden whomever he wills. If I could put a question back to the objector who says, isn't this unjust? I would ask this. How is it unjust for God to leave men in their sins and to harden their hearts further as an act of judgment against them? Explain that to me. How is it unjust? Are they not getting what they deserve? In fact, this is perfectly just. For the wages of sin is what? Death and all are sinners. So you cannot complain that this is unjust. This is perfectly just. The astonishing thing is that God does not treat everyone in this way. That is the astonishing thing. The astonishing thing is not that the Lord hardened Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The astonishing thing is that He called Moses and determined to redeem the Hebrews. That's what should shock us as we read the Exodus narrative. As we read along, we should not be shocked by these remarks that Pharaoh was hardened. We should be shocked by the call of Moses, by the call of Aaron, by the fact that God did not put Moses' firstborn son to death, though he deserved it too. Are you following along with me? We learn all about Moses and the Hebrews and their many flaws. It's astonishing that God would show such mercy and grace to men like this. That is what the whole narrative of the book of Exodus is emphasizing. Look at how God is sovereign over all things, even the heart of man. And look at the glory of His grace and look also at how glorious His judgments are. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we are told. Um, Another question that will arise within the minds of many is... What about free will? Don't we believe that men and women are free to make choices and are held accountable for their choices? Yes, we do believe that, in fact. Did you know that? We who are Reformed and Calvinistic, who teach the doctrine of election, predestination, and all of that, we very much are devoted to this idea that men and women are free. They are free to make choices and they are held accountable for their choices. An entire chapter of our Confession of Faith is devoted to that subject. It's a very helpful chapter, and I think you should read it. We believe in free will. We believe that men and women make real choices from the heart. So free are we that we will stand before God accountable to Him, as accountable creatures. We believe that human beings are free agents, but we also confess what the Scriptures so clearly teach, that we, by nature, are in bondage to sin. If God leaves us to ourselves, we do not freely run to Him, but what do we do? We run away from Him and into idolatry. 
We do not freely worship and serve Him. We rebel. We are free to make these choices from the heart, but our hearts are sick with sin, leading us to evil. A bad tree produces bad fruit, remember. So yes, in this sense, man is free. He makes real choices from the heart. They are His choices. But we must also confess that the will of man is not ultimate. God's will is ultimate. The whole portion of, of, of the book of Exodus that we're considering is very insightful. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart, I ask you? Well, I think you would agree with me. The entire emphasis is placed upon God hardening Pharaoh's heart. That's the first thing that's said in 421, and it's the predominant theme throughout the whole plague narrative. But if I would ask you who hardened Pharaoh's heart, you would say God did, but also there are some places that say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Did Moses get confused as he was writing the story? Did he forget who the active agent was? And so he kind of you know, mistakenly threw in a couple of contradictory statements here. I think not. Instead, I think Moses wants for us to understand what the rest of the scriptures teach. That is, that God is ultimately sovereign over the will of man. And yes, God was active to harden Pharaoh's heart in a special way, but, but Pharaoh was also doing what he wanted to do. He himself was at the same time hardening his own heart. And it's not hard to imagine how this works. There is mystery in it, of course, but I think sometimes we pretend it's more mysterious than it is. Um, Pharaoh was an idolatrous sinner like the rest of mankind. And God gave him over to that sin. This is a form of judgment, by the way. God will sometimes give human beings over to their sins so that they sin even more and even more grievously. It's a form of judgment. And as further judgment, God did also actively harden Pharaoh's heart. We cannot deny that. The scriptures are clear. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, period. And this was, again, a form of judgment. And Pharaoh, in his stubborn obstinance, did also harden his own heart even more, even further. I think we get into trouble when we start in the wrong place by imagining that Pharaoh was by nature a good guy and deep down wanted to honor God, but God would not allow it. Is that what's going on here in the narrative? I don't think so. That is not at all what was going on. God did not put something in Pharaoh's heart that was not there already, namely hardness and rebellion and an idolatrous nature. He, would, he brutally oppressed the Hebrews for a long, long time, you see. So he did not put something in his heart that wasn't there already, namely sin. No, he gave him over to sin and even hardened his heart further as an act of, as an act of judgment. And... This is what God does all the time. Throughout the course of human history, even to this present day, He passes over and even hardens some according to His just judgments. He does often give men over to their sins. You can read Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28 to hear about that. And He does also harden them and blind them further as a form of judgment you see it all around you, even to this present day, and you may read of it in John 12, 40 and Romans 9, 18. Earlier I said that this little passage anticipates two themes. One, God's sovereignty over all things, and two, the display of God's glory in judgment and in mercy. And I'd like to spend just a little bit of time 
on the theme of the display of God's glory in judgment and in mercy before we conclude. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? What was the purpose? It was to display his power over Pharaoh and over the so-called gods of Egypt and the plagues and in the parting of the Red Sea. Again, listen to what God said to Pharaoh in 9.16. It's very instructive. For this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul teaches the same thing when he says in Romans 9.22, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It's so explicit. Notice that God is enduring with much patience these vessels of wrath. In other words, they... They are constantly sinning against Him. They are by nature children of wrath, and He bears with them. Why? So as to show His wrath and to make His power known. So again, why the process? That is the question I've been asking myself regarding the Exodus over and over again. Why the process? Why the hundreds of years of bondage? Why wait until Moses was 80? Why all of that suffering? Why ten plagues and not just one? Why did the Egyptians pursue the Hebrews afterwards and not just let them go? Why the parting of the sea? On and I can can go. Why the whole process? Was God not able to accomplish this purpose in another way? Maybe more quickly. Maybe with less suffering. And we all say, of course He was able. But He determined to do things this way. Why this way? Well, we do not know for sure all the reasons, for we cannot get into the mind of God as it were. But one thing that is revealed to us is that in this way, through this process, God was glorified in His judgments. God was glorified in His judgments. His power over Pharaoh and the so-called gods of Egypt was put on display in this way. And we may say the exact same thing regarding His mercy and grace. Why did God choose the Hebrews? Why did He choose Moses? Why did Moses have to fail and be humbled before being used as an old man? Why this story about Moses' son being uncircumcised and threatened with death right after God threatened the death of Pharaoh's firstborn? Why did the Hebrews, or excuse me, why did the elders of the Hebrews believe while Pharaoh and the Egyptians disbelieved? Why all of that? Was God not able to accomplish redemption in another way? Maybe more quickly, maybe with less suffering. And we say, of course, he was able. Then why this way? Why such a process? Well, again, we do not know for sure, for we cannot get into the mind of God, as it were. But one thing is revealed to us is that through this process, God was glorified in his mercy and in his grace. Attention was drawn to to the mercy and grace of God. It's glorious. His unmerited favor towards the Hebrews, was in this way put on full display. Now I would ask you to step back from the Exodus and consider the whole course of human history, from creation and the fall of man into sin, on to this present day, and ask, why this process? Have you ever thought about that? Why this whole process? Why the course of human history? Why the fall of man into sin and the accomplishment of our redemption thousands upon thousands of years later? Why the delay even now until Christ returns? Why this whole process? You may even ask the same question of your own individual life. Why this process? Consider the sufferings. Consider the blessings too. 
Why this process, we ask? We don't have all the answers, but one thing we can say for sure, God will get the glory in the end. His perfect justice will be displayed, and so too will His mercy and grace. And I want you to notice that that is the answer that Paul gives to the question, why are there elect and why are there reprobates? Is God unjust? He answers, what if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So as the Apostle Paul steps back from the entire course of human history and in my words, asks why this process, he emphasizes how God is putting on display His glory and His power in judgment, and how He is also putting on display the glory of His marvelous grace. The answer consistently comes back to this, God is making Himself known. He is making Himself known. He is displaying His glory and power. He is putting His perfect justice and His glorious grace on display for all to see. He did it at the time of the Exodus. He did it at the cross. He's doing it now. He will do it fully and finally at the end of time when Christ returns to judge and to make all things new. So why teach these things? Why teach the doctrine of reprobation? Why place such an emphasis on the Hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You came to hear an encouraging message today. And instead you hear about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and this difficult doctrine of reprobation. Why teach these things? Well, first of all, it is because the Scriptures teach these things and place emphasis upon them. So evidently God wants us to know that He is truly Lord Most High. He is truly sovereign over all things, yes, even the heart of man, and over man's salvation and reprobation. I'm a minister of the Word, friends. My calling is to give you God's Word and not mine. If this is a major theme in Exodus, if it is a major theme in Paul, then shouldn't it be a major theme in our preaching, too? Do we know better than God concerning what His people need in order to sojourn in this world well, with faith in their hearts. If God's Word says it, if it reveals it, then God's people must know it. And God wants us to know it. And He wants us to know it so that we might walk with confidence in this world. And so that we might, in fact, give Him glory for His perfectly just judgments and for His marvelous grace. So I teach these things because the Scriptures do. Secondly, I teach these doctrines... Because when properly understood, they are in fact good for the soul of God's people. If you take the time to think about these doctrines carefully, you will see that they are. God's people must know that God is sovereign over all things, yes, even the heart of the king, as they sojourn in this sin-sick world. This is in fact a solid foundation for our feet. Our God is in heaven, truly sovereign. He's not in heaven holding everything together, but barely. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is accomplishing all of His purposes. He has declared the beginning from the end. And as His children, we are to take 
encouragement from this. We are to stand upon this firm foundation. We are to not be easily shaken, for we know that our Lord reigns. Really, He does. He reigns, even over the hearts of men. Imagine having a small view of God in your mind as you ask questions like, where is God in all of this? And what is the purpose of this? I think you will see that your heart would be easily overwhelmed with fear, with angst. You'd quickly lose hope. For your God is small. Things are not under His control, really. Everything is under His control except man. Okay, That's not comforting at all. But to know that He is sovereign even over Pharaoh, even over the rulers that rule over us presently, this is comfort for the soul of God's people. Our God is big, brothers and sisters. In fact, He is unlimited in His power and wisdom. He is worthy of our trust. Our God is holy. He is perfectly just and will do what is right. He is worthy of our love and adoration. Our God is merciful and kind. We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. He is worthy of our obedience and of our praise. Brothers and sisters, we worship and serve the Lord. He will be gracious to whom He will be gracious. And He will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. That is actually actually Exodus 33, 18-20. We'll come to this very interesting text later. This is that passage where Moses asks to see God in fullness. God says, I'll show you my glory, but you can't see my face. So he stuck Moses in that cleft of the rock, and Moses was able to see God's backside, as it were. The request was, God, God reveal yourself even more fully to me. And what did God say to Moses as he again revealed himself to him and as he emphasized the significance of the name Lord, Yahweh? He said these words, which I have just read. He will be gracious to whom he will be gracious and he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Evidently, this is very much tightly linked with the name Yahweh. We are to see that he is Lord Most High. He is sovereign over all things. He has this right to show mercy to whomever he wills and to judge and even to harden whomever He wills. God will get the glory in the end, brothers and sisters, both for His mercy and grace and for His just judgments. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that it reveals You to us, Your plans and Your purposes. I do pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would process this teaching well, that they would humbly submit to the Scriptures. Um, These are your words, O God, to us, and we are to believe what they say. And help us, O God, to stand in awe of your marvelous mercy and grace and to your perfectly just judgments too, O God. May we glorify you for these things. May we take encouragement from them. May we see that you are truly sovereign over all things. And may we sojourn well in this world, trusting that you will indeed accomplish all of your purpose. In fact, you are doing so right now, presently. Father, strengthen us, we pray, so that we might serve you with all that we are. In Christ's name, amen.